From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, we weren't here last week, but we made up for it this week with a, with a hugely busy week. I mean, there was a lot of news that broke over the course of the week, and we'll, we'll get to that and we'll tease into some of that as we go. This is also a, a big week on, on our calendar because we got to roll out a project that I've been working on for a few months and was excited to finally get to share some of these stories. Yeah, Kevin, this is a project that you've been working on for months, as you mentioned, taking a look at higher education in Idaho, the state's signature goals, uh, kind of opportunities and obstacles to higher education. You took a deep dive. This is one of the most pressing issues in education, not only in Idaho, but across the yeah. country. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's, I want to spend a good portion of today's podcast devoted to the series because uh, there's so much to it and because it's so important and because it's so timely. Uh, we also have an opportunity to connect with our readers and listeners and the community next week. But I guess just to start with, we have been kind of teasing this for weeks, but why don't you kind of uh, break it down for our listeners about kind of where the idea came from and so, sort of what your mission statement was with this project, and then we'll get into what you've actually found and reported. Okay, well, let's kind of press the reset because this is a, a topic we've written about for for years and a topic that I, I did a series about a year ago. Idaho's been wrestling with the 60% goal since 2010, and the idea is to try to have uh, 60% of the state's 25 to 34-year-olds have some kind of a post-secondary education. And that's important to remember a lot of misperceptions about what it means. Uh, 60% means... Uh, adults with a college degree, two-year degree, four-year degree. It also means uh, adults who have some sort of a post-secondary certificate. They've gone through a career technical program, passed high school, and have received a certificate. Well, that's the goal. And as you all know, because we've uh, talked about it numerous times, we're nowhere near that goal. We're at 42%. And that's the number we've been stuck at now for a couple of years. So... Way back last year, when I did a series looking at how much we were spending to try to move that needle towards 60%, uh, we we looked at the money, we looked at how we've spent the money, uh, what kind of results we're getting, and and really kind of looked at the spending, also the affordability angle. And I I thought we broke some, some important news in that series, but I always felt like there was more to do. So... We took another look at it, and we were fortunate enough to get uh, a fellowship and some money from Education Writers Association, which uh, helped support this series and also, you know, kind of forced us to commit to it and (laughs) forced us to look deeper at the issue. And what I really tried to do this week is look at why we're not making much progress towards the 60% and why we're having trouble, especially with some of the demographic challenges that we face in the state and some of the demographic gaps that are so pervasive in the state. Looking at rural populations, communities that are far from a college campus that may have limited uh, career technical opportunities close to home. Poverty, they have areas of the state where there's extremely high poverty and how that affects student decisions and, and parents' decisions about education past high school. And we wanted to take a close look at uh, demographic gaps, uh, ethnic uh, gaps in terms of uh, 
Native American populations and uh, Hispanic populations. And, and what I found looking at those populations is you know, the, the gap, not so much in post-secondary enrollment, but certainly in terms of post-secondary completion. That's where the numbers really get to be uh, sobering. Yeah. And why did we do this? Why did we focus on this? And, and it's not to suggest, you know, obviously we're not trying to suggest that you know, rural students or Latino or Native American students or first-generation students can't compete in a post-secondary No, not at, all. Not, no, not at all. That's not at all why we focus on the demographics, but we do focus on it in terms of there's a cultural divide here to some degree. There's definitely a financial divide uh, to, to a large degree. You have to talk about affordability and you have to talk about access when you look at what's happening past high school. So that's what we tried to do with this series. That's, that's kind of the overview. And, and it's an eight-story series, so there's a lot there. And, and I hope people take the time to read the stories and, and kind of you know, take a look at what we tried to address here and what we, what we tried to find. You know, I guess the takeaway for me, if there is one takeaway, is this is going to be really difficult for Idaho to do. And we've already pushed back the deadline. Yeah. You know, we've already talked about going from a 2020 target date. We've abandoned that. We've gone to a 2025 target date, which I called Quixotic in one of the stories. And I really use that word carefully and deliberately because one thing that I found along the way, in addition to talking to people, talking to students, talking to teachers, talking to policymakers, was uh, trying to look at the, the state of the research on this topic. And there was a study done about a year ago by the uh, Educational Testing Service uh, out of Princeton, New Jersey, looking at the national 60% goal. Because Idaho was, only, was one of just 40-some-odd states with a, a post-secondary goal of its own, and there's a national goal uh, to get to 60%. And what ETS determined was, you know, looking at the nation, looking at our, our demographics, looking at the population trends, we could get to a 60% goal nationwide by the year 2041. <laughs> That's a long way away. And Idaho is shooting for this 2025 target goal 16 years before the rest of the country. And I don't want to be a naysayer, but I just don't see how it happens. I don't see how you get there in seven years when a lot of what we're trying to do is encourage today's high school students or today's junior high school students to start thinking about life after high school. Well, they're not going to be 25 to 34 year olds in the workforce for, you know, a decade or more in some cases. It's it's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of changing mindsets and changing minds at, you know, at the household level. I mean, this is a huge undertaking and to try to establish, oh, we got a 60% goal. Oh, we're going to hit it by 2025. It's like we're almost setting ourselves up for failure and we're focusing on a target date rather than the big picture of trying to uh, trying to change the mindset, trying to change the, the attitudes, it, because that's going to be such a long, hard slog that, you know, it doesn't lend itself to this neat and tidy timetable. That's the biggest takeaway for me is that, and it's not saying that it wasn't an admirable goal or it's not um, important to aspire to things like that or the goal itself isn't solid, um, but it doesn't appear that we're going to make uh, the 2025 goal, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. It's capacity at our existing colleges and universities. It's affordability. Uh, it's a 
a cultural issue. Um, yeah. I mean, across Idaho, it's it's funding, it's affordability, it's uh, it, it, there's just so many things. It's such a complicated, it's such a complicated issue, um, and it's not going to happen overnight. But you talk about this cultural shift and and, and how significant it is. Um, but yeah, maybe it is. You know, and I know it's important when you set goals to have them be, uh, you know, sort of measurable and to have deadlines to, to push yourself to. But, uh, I mean, I like what you said about setting yourself up for failure. Does that is that just another week's worth of bad news when we approach 2025 and, and, and maybe we're at 43 or 44 or 45 percent, not 60 percent? Um, so I don't know, but I almost wonder if we need to back up for just two seconds. Sure. And we've talked about it before, but where does the 60% goal come from? Because it's not arbitrary. It's based on a university study about workforce needs, correct? Right. I mean, this goes back to uh, a Georgetown University study that was done back in 2010, right about the time the State Board of Education yeah. first established the 60% goal. And what Georgetown determined is that looking at the jobs in Idaho you know, today and moving forward that the majority of workers are going to need some sort of a post-secondary uh, certificate or degree. So in response to that, Idaho established its 60% goal. And like I said, other states have done uh, similar things. I mean, some of the numbers are different. Some of the ways you measure success are, are different. But the, the point is this idea of a push for post-secondary completion is it's a national push. Idaho is just one state trying to do this. And a lot of states are struggling with this. You mm -hmm. know, I, I kind of started out in the series wanting to say, okay, here's a state that's really got it figured out. And looking around the West, uh, Colorado has pretty good post-secondary completion rates, but I'm not sure that Colorado and Idaho are uh, much of an apples, yeah. apples yeah. comparison. I mean, you know, some of the more rural states in the West are struggling with this, and you know most states really are trying to 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 figure out what the magic formula is, and, and that's something they'll keep trying to look at in, in the future. Is okay, where are examples of states that have you know really seen some improvement, that have really made some progress? I mean, that's uh, you know that, that's something they'll keep wanting to look yeah. at and keep looking to, to to spotlight because maybe there are lessons from other states. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I go back to, you know, if I'm wrong in the year 2025 and we're on episode, what would be like episode 400 and yeah, something yeah. Of, of the Extra Credit Podcast, I, I'll, I'll sit here and say, yep, I was wrong. We, we hit it. But I just don't see it happening. Yeah. And, but I do see some signs of some interesting ideas. You know, we did try to spotlight some programs and some some innovations that, that are going on that, that are showing some potential. I mean, one that really is interesting to me, it's a pilot program in Jerome. It's geared towards uh, Latino students. Uh, Jerome is you know, you know, right in the middle of the Magic Valley. It's got, it got a large Latino population. What they've done, starting with some money from the University of Idaho, and now they've uh, received some grant money to keep it going, is a program with eighth graders and now ninth graders trying to encourage these students to think about where they want to go beyond high school, to, to get them thinking about STEM, to get them thinking about post-secondary, and, and get parents thinking about that as well, because you, you need to bring the parents along. 
So last year was the first year of the program. They had 40 students sign up. And what I found really interesting about it and really cool about it is all 40 of them came back for ninth grade. I mean, what are the odds of getting 40 eighth graders to agree to do anything? <laughs> I mean, that's pretty interesting and that's pretty cool. So they're all back and now they've got a new cohort of this year's eighth graders coming into the program. Yeah, the, the fellow who's in charge of it, when I talked to him, he said, you know, look, I, I hope they all go into college. I hope they all get master's degrees. That, that's, you know, you know, that's what he's hoping. But he's saying, look, I, I want to see them continue in some sort of, sort of education. We won't know for years what happens. You know, we won't know the results. And that's kind of the point about all of these you know, innovations, all of these new ideas, whether it's, you know, this program Camino Sal Futuro in Jerome or whether it's a counselor at Choban High School driving the kids to ISU to take their dual credit classes, getting them off of the Choban High School campus onto the ISU campus via minivan every morning yeah. of spring semester mm. to take their dual credit classes to get exposed to college, to get exposed to a campus setting. You know, and whether it's you know some combination of all of the money that we're spending on those dual credit classes or these uh, college and career advisors, all of this. We don't know what the magic formula is. There are some things that are showing some promise, but promise and results in this case are years apart. You yeah. know, and we're years away from seeing what the results are going to be. You know, we did want to focus on some things that are showing some potential, and there are some things that are showing some potential. And my guess is if you're going to get to this number or a number, an improved number by the year 2025, it's going to take a lot of different efforts. It's going to take a lot of different initiatives, and it's going to take a lot of individual efforts. Uh, people saying, okay, I want to take, you know, go the extra mile to try to get students thinking about their futures in different ways. So, you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot in the series, obviously. Uh, you know, I could, you know, I encourage you to read it for yourself and arrive at your own conclusions, but I also encourage you to, to hear from some of the people that I heard from in putting the series together, and you'll have that opportunity come Tuesday. Yeah. Um, a couple uh, really important things that I liked about it is you've emphasized in the story that it isn't just about college. It's not just about community college or university. Uh, you've talked about how career technical education is a big part right. of this effort, we, and we sometimes that gets lost. It really when does. It's, when, you think, when some people talk about the 60% goal, they might mistake it for uh, a go-on goal, which is similar, but that's not what this is even, and it's not just about colleges and universities, and you took pains really on a couple of installments to talk about the important role that career technical right. plays in we, this. We basically, we spent a whole day looking at career technical education and apprenticeships. And I, I did that on purpose because as I did the research for the series and as I've kind of watched whenever we've written about the 60% goal, there's always this misperception yeah. that it's a college completion goal. And we keep trying to make uh, make the point that it's not a college completion goal. And, if you, you have know, a, and, a, as I, and as I talk to educators, they say, Yes, that gets lost in the translation, even with the kids. Yeah. They don't understand that it's, you know, post-secondary, it's not necessarily college. So now, if you have that nursing certificate, that welding certificate, that auto tech certificate, those all those would all count. Um, if it's a post-secondary. Yeah, if it's, it's after high school. High school. Right. Yeah. Yes, and, and that does count. And that's, yeah, so we really wanted to focus on career technical, partly because, you know, it's it's a pathway into the workforce. Uh, if a student gets a post-secondary certificate and can go into the workforce and get a decent job and, and make a make a decent salary that's uh, that's a good outcome for a lot of 
for a lot of young people. Absolutely. And for a lot of young people, you know, especially in, in poorer uh, communities, having those uh, career technical skills developed in high school also gives you a way to pay for college. You know, we spent some time uh, in Payette talking to students, and some of those students that we talked to are planning to go to college. They're taking nursing classes or welding classes, and this gives them a skill that they can use in the workforce so that they can help pay for college. And, you know, when I talked to the, the vice principal up there, Marcy Holcomb, she said, you know, look, I mean, I'm a native of this community. I kind of know the, the economic realities here. High poverty, you know, about 80% of the students up there probably uh, qualifying for free or reduced price lunch. If these students want to go into college, it's on them. They have to figure out a way to pay for it. CTE is a way to help pay for it. So we, we focus on that because in a lot of communities, it's showing some promise. These communities, especially the rural communities, are sometimes they're struggling to you know, scrape together the money to keep the programs going or to find faculty, to find teachers who can, can teach or are willing to teach a nursing class. Uh, it, it's hard because you know, somebody who can teach a nursing class can make a lot more money yeah. in nursing. Yeah. And that's a challenge in, in communities like Payette. So we really wanted to focus on CTE. We really wanted to make sure, you know, we, yeah, the name of the series was Obstacles and Options. So CTE was something we highlighted because in a lot of communities and for it's a lot option. of kids, it is an option and a viable one. A very legitimate option. A couple other things. I really liked the grant from the Education Writers Associations and some of the partnerships that you drummed up, Kevin, allowed you to leave Boise, to leave our office. Mm -hmm. And I think that was so important for this series. You mentioned the program in Jerome. You mentioned your visit in Payette. But that fellowship with EWA allowed you to get out of the office, get out of the Treasure Valley, and spend some time around the state. Uh, and I think that that was so important that that helped bring that project to life. Well, I, again, uh, EWA has been just wonderful in support of this project. Uh, Education Writers Association, if you haven't heard of them, they're a, you know, a national organization that supports education reporters all across the country. Uh, we've both had the chance to go to uh, seminars of theirs. Uh, they, they do wonderful work supporting education journalism and uh, they've been you know, instrumental. I, I don't think we do this series without, and not, not even just the, the money's important and the money's valuable and it really helped us get out of the, get out of the office and, and hit the road and do this thing right or you know, <laughs> do it as right as we could do it. Yeah. But it really forced us to commit to doing the series. And it forced me as a reporter to sit back and say, okay, what do I do that I haven't done already? How do I take this to a different level? I mean, you know, it was really important to have them on board. And I think they really forced us to think about, well, what do you do beyond just writing about this? And that leads us to the, the town hall on Tuesday night yeah. that I want to make sure that yeah. we let people know about. Because I'm really excited about this. This is, you know... This isn't just an add-on to the series. I feel like this is really going to be the, the culmination of a lot of the work is to be able to convene a panel with several of the folks that I had a chance to talk to uh, during the series and have them talk to each other and talk to readers and answer questions from an audience and answer questions from readers. So I'm really excited about Tuesday's event. So uh, let's... Let's kind of set the stage for that a little bit, too. Yeah, that, um, again, thanks to EWA, but also some of the other partners. We're working with Boise State Public Radio, City Club of Boise, uh, Boise State University, Idaho Public Television, KIVI, uh, News Channel 6. But 6 p.m., 
Tuesday, December 4th, there's two ways to participate. Uh, if you live in the Boise area and want to come out to Boise State University's Student Union Building Special Event Center, 6 p.m. Tuesday, December 4th, you can catch uh, the town hall discussion in person. Uh, if you can't make it out or if you just want to stay home that night, you can watch it on Facebook Live at the Idaho Education News Facebook page. The way to get set up to that would be if you don't already, head over to Facebook, go to the Idaho Education News page, give us a like, and then come back Tuesday and there will be promotional materials and, and uh, all kinds of information to point you in the right direction. Um, so 6 p.m., Tuesday, December 4th. But let's talk a little bit about the event itself mm -hmm. yeah. and some of the panelists, as you mentioned, who you work with and spoke with in the reporting of the series uh, and, and what, what can we expect on Tuesday. Right, so we have eight panelists, and it's it's a great mix. I'm really excited, and my goal as a moderator is just to get out of the way and let these folks yeah. uh, talk uh, because they live this issue. They're, they're, they're articulate. They're passionate about it. We've got a couple of students. Uh, a senior from Weezer High School is going to be there, a, a second-year student uh, from the uh, College of Southern Idaho. We've got uh, the superintendent from the Weezer School District. We've got educators from uh, all three of the major universities, uh, Boise State University, University of Idaho, Idaho State University. Uh, State a, Board of Education a member. State Board of Education member, a Boise Elementary School teacher. And I, what I tried to do when I put this panel together, like I said, I've spoken to several of these folks uh, in person, and I've met them in the course of doing this series um, and I wanted to get a variety of perspectives, both from the K-12 perspective and the higher education perspective and the state policy perspective uh, with the state board. Um, yeah, I've been impressed by all of these uh, folks I've had a chance to talk to, and especially the, the folks that we've, we've got on the panel Tuesday night. I, you know, and what we'll do is, you know, we'll spend probably the first hour or so kind of going into some of the bigger topics that, that I tried to explore in the series. But then the, the final half hour is going to be especially free-flowing. I, I really want this to be a conversation from start to finish, but especially uh, the final half hour, we will open it up to questions from the audience at the Special Events Center. But we'll also be looking on our Facebook page for questions from, from you if you're watching at home. Yep. Uh, so you have an equal opportunity to uh, raise a question, and we will try to get to as many questions as possible. Because I, I think it's really important now, uh, it's it's fine and well and, and good for me to write eight stories that I hope people are reading, <laughs> that I hope are getting the conversation started. But I, I think a, a really good way to get the conversation started is you're going to get to hear from people directly who are involved in this oh, yeah. issue, who are passionate On about this issue. On the front lines, issue. yeah. Yeah. You know, who know more about this issue from, from, from their professional experience and from their personal lives than, than I know. So, so we would hear from them firsthand, and I'm just excited to have them all on the same stage. Uh, I'm excited to see how they sort of riff off of each other as we talk about these, these topics. So it should be a really good event, and we hope, uh, we hope you can come out in person or watch it on Facebook. And even if you can't do either of those on Tuesday, It'll be archived. It will be archived on Facebook, and it will be rebroadcast on Idaho Public Television on uh, December 17th. Boise State Public Radio is going to rebroadcast uh, on radio at a later date. So a lot of opportunities to hear this conversation. It's an important conversation, so we hope you 
can find the time for it. We're, we're giving you multiple opportunities to to hear and to participate. Yeah, once again, 6 p.m. Tuesday, December 4th. Watch it live on Facebook Live at the Idaho Education News page. Otherwise, it is free, just like all of our events. Um, it's free if you want to come out in person. We would love uh, to see you, to have a chance to ask a question in person, uh, to meet us, to introduce yourself to any of the panelists, ask any questions you have. If you have a son or daughter coming up through uh, the public school ranks and, and want to know a little bit more about opportunities and obstacles. Great resource uh, for parents. But Tuesday, December 4th, 6 p.m., Facebook Live in the BSU Student Union Building Special Event Center uh, is the place to be. Yes. Yeah, so we look forward to seeing you there, and we look forward to your questions either in person or on or on Facebook Live. Yep, absolutely. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit. I feel like I've talked uh, talked 90% of this podcast, uh, and I could probably go on for another two hours about this series, uh, except to say please read it if you haven't already, and let us know what you think about it. But let's talk about other stuff that happened this busy week. Um, we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, talk about Wilder and some... Uh, some VIPs that came to the Wilder schools. You were out there um, watching Tuesday, from a distance. Watching from a distance, yes. Um, yeah, Tuesday morning, Apple CEO Tim Cook and presidential advisor and first daughter Ivanka Trump mm -hmm. uh, visited the Wilder School District. It was kind of a late-breaking announcement that uh, really the public just learned about it the day before. Yeah, late um, afternoon the day before, uh, uh, Nicole Foy from the Idaho Press broke the story. I mean, in yep. that, so very little lead time for any of us to know that this was coming. But what it was all about was uh, in 2016, the Wilder School, Dip School District was the recipient of a connected grant that was a partnership between Apple and the White House. They provided iPads to every student and I believe staff member at the Wilder School District uh, to help get them wired and to help bring some technology into the school there. The superintendent, Jeff Dillon, has really embraced that uh, and used it towards uh, kind of a personalized, mastery-based system of learning. And so that's why Ivanka Trump and Tim Cook uh, were out there. It was, that's what happened, but sort of... Uh, the but some unexpected things yeah. happened. I mean, you know... What kind of bubbled to the surface and, and went very public on Tuesday were uh, some student concerns about this iPad program. I mean, sitting here four days later, the thing that sticks out to me is the student concerns. Um, and the student walkouts. I mean, yeah. they did not want to have anything to do with Ivanka Trump or Tim Cook being on their, on their campuses. Just before 8 a.m., the schools were scheduled to go into a lockdown to provide security for the visit. Um, you know, as a member of the first family, Ivanka does get uh, Secret Service protection, and so there was a, secure, a significant security presence uh, out at Wilder. And so six students walked out just before the visit, before the lockdown, and they approached a group of local journalists who were standing out in the rain across the street from the elementary school and said, we are coming out here because we want you to hear both sides of the iPad story, and if we remained in school, inside, we would not have been able to be honest about our experience. Um, but I met six students, high school students, freshmen and sophomores, who are concerned about Wilder's use of iPads, uh, the over-reliance on technology, and they're worried about the quality of education that they're receiving in Wilder. And we did look up some of the demographic mm -hmm. and student achievement data, and it, and it backs up some of their concerns. Uh, this right. fall, Wilder Middle School was identified as one of the lowest performing schools in the state of Idaho. Um, the elementary school has low proficiency rates in English 
and math, and the high school's go-on rate is about 20 points below the state average. And so some of the concerns um, appear to be backed up by student achievement right. data. And, 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 and also, to, also important to remember, I mean, those achievement numbers, the demographics in Wilder, we talked so much about demographics uh, in the first segment, and we talked so much about it in the series. Wilder is illustrative of a lot of the demographic challenges facing rural Idaho. A poor, Extremely predominantly Latino poverty, community. Extreme poverty and, and a very large Latino population. So it, very important to keep all of that in, in context. But There were also public protesters out there protesting Ivanka's visit. They thought it was kind of this cozy photo op between this tech giant and the administration perhaps to drum up some positive press in a rough week uh, for the administration. And they had pro-Trump demonstrators. And they did have pro-Trump well. demonstrators yeah, as well, but small groups. Um, both camps were a dozen or less, uh, so not a huge showing either way. Interestingly, just a little behind the scenes, uh, the Wilder School District and their superintendent, Jeff Dillon, did not allow any local media in except for the Idaho Statesman, and then there was this agreement nationally with ABC News, and so about 20 local Idaho journalists were out <laughs> in the freezing cold rain, for about four hours on Tuesday morning, nobody from the school district would talk to us in the morning. So the only people we could actually talk to about the visit were the students we're, who were, were protesting. Protesters. And, and I think that that access became a big part of the story. Uh, you know, not, not just that you were left outside and every other reporter, save for uh, Cynthia Sewell and, and, and Catherine Jones from the Statesman were, were allowed in. The access became a big part of the story, and it and it it's even compounded by the fact that uh, Cynthia and, and yeah, Catherine were, were, yeah. were, had access a lot of no, strings but attached, but were not allowed to even ask questions. A lot of strings of attached. Ivanka Trump or, or Tim Cook. Yeah, you know, it was it was a photo op for the Statesman and for ABC News. It was a photo non opportunity for every other member. Of and the when media. you look at some and, of the national news about the Trump administration and the potential tariffs and the effect on iPhone prices. I really start to feel uncomfortable about the setup. I wonder if the Wilder School District maybe would do this differently uh, with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, regardless, that's just conjecture, and that's not the world we live in. And so that is how the event played out. I don't want to dwell on it too much. No, but, but I think it's important to address it because we've gotten a couple of comments on Facebook saying, you know, why was the story so negative? Couldn't you possibly write a positive story? Well, yeah. I can't write about something that nobody will tell me about. And you can't write about something you can't observe except from a distance. And, you know, you know, the students and their concerns are definitely an aspect of a story about the Wilder iPad program. I mean, that's yeah. a side of the story. There's no disputing. A side that. of the story that we hadn't really heard before and hadn't gotten public before. Um, and the fact that it went public in this very, you know, high-profile setting is definitely an element of the story. So, you know... That, that's kind of the situation that we were handed. It was kind of the situation that our friends at the Statesman were handed. I think they were put in a no-win situation as well. Yeah. Um, really unfortunate because, you know, that's, you know, that, that's the environment that we're, we're living in as reporters uh, sometimes. It is. Uh, I got to say, though, uh, just on a personal level, as a big supporter of the First Amendment and everything that it enables for journalism, um, I was impressed with those students uh, who exercised their First Amendment rights, not knowing what punishment they would face, not knowing if they would be allowed back in the school. It's important to point out it was only a very small percentage of students. Um, but I spent some time with them, and I, they struck me as sincere with their concerns that it was not just an opportunity to goof off and get out of class. 
um, they struck me as sincere and very brave. And yes, oh, it was a very small percentage of the student body, um, but that's what sticks out to me about this event some four days later is not the photos I saw, not the cutesy Good Morning America piece the next day, uh, but what sticks with me is those students uh, and, and that you, walked out to say, we want to tell you something. And that's really important to note here because, again, looking at some of the comments that we got, uh, some commenters kind of intimated that uh, you know, the, the kids are just parroting what they heard at home. They're just trying to get out. This of came together those, quickly. You know, I, mean, I only had enough t chance to, to parrot what they heard at home or to concoct something because they they don't like uh, Donald Trump or anything like that. And, you know, these are high school students and... I want to believe that high school students are smart enough and savvy enough and capable enough to arrive at some own, some conclusions about life, especially about their own education. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if we're going to talk to kids about their future like I did for this series, we should be uh, willing to talk and able to talk to kids about their education setting. And even in a case like this where they're criticizing uh, their school administration and their school policies, I think they have a right to be heard. And I think we, as uh, folks who listen to these students, uh, should give them the benefit of the doubt and say, you know, they, you know, you know, this is coming from a, from a, you know, coming from the heart for these kids. So, you know, you know, instead of assuming that it's some left wing conspiracy to make Ivanka Trump look bad, let's listen to what the kids have to say. I mean, they, I was out there, they were freezing cold. Like, like they, you, I mean, yeah, they struck me as sincere. Uh, they were not just out there goofing off um, as an excuse to get out of school. And I know that some of the commenters online seized on a grammatical error in, in one of the students' uh, posters. To me, I didn't have the same reaction as some of the commenters that seized on that. I don't think that that disproves their point at all. They came to me saying they were concerned about their quality of education. So um, I'm not that alarmed by what people are pointing out about the grammatical error and those signs, I don't think it invalidates their point at all. I, I think, if anything, they said they were concerned about their education, and, and I didn't see that as an indictment on the students no, or their intentions no. or invalidating their point or anything like that uh, at all. And it's also, quite frankly, a grammatical error that I see a lot of adults make um, uh, in published work and in social media and in advertising um, and so I, I can't, I did yeah. not have that same reaction. No, um, no. Anyways, another, a, a big week. If you want to catch up on the, uh, the Wilder situation, we did have a story back on Tuesday uh, at the homepage. You did a little bit of an analysis talking about the demographics and how it really fits in uh, with your obstacles and opportunities series because of the situation that Wilder's in. That's yeah. all there on Tuesday at idahoednews.org. Also a very important update from, from you, Kevin, the kind of story that could have been a top story in many other weeks. State of Idaho reset its record for supplemental levies approved by voters um, for the first time ever. We're reached a milestone over $200 million just by a smidge and a smooch. Uh, what was it, $202 million? $202 million. It's up about $8 million from uh, from a year ago. We have that breakdown. I mean, this was a big week. Aside from the Ivanka Trump, uh, Tim Cook visit, aside from, from my series... Supplemental levies uh, are a big deal. We, we track this a lot. We had big news earlier in the week on the school funding formula committee. Yeah. It all does tie together um, as we watch that uh, school funding formula rewrite as it gets ready to go before the legislature. You have a, a full breakdown of what happened. 
at their meeting on Monday. You'll have a follow-up uh, first part of next week talking about local officials. Yep about what they make of this new formula. It's going to be a top story throughout the first half of 2019 during the it, it legislative session. It could be session. one of the prevailing issues of the entire session and, and could be the prevailing issue of uh, on the education front, which also ties us into next week. I mean, we'll have another busy week next week. You don't forget have, the forum Tuesday, December 4th. Don't forget Tuesday night's uh, town hall. And then on Wednesday, we'll be back at it at the State House. Really important uh, leadership decisions are going to be made at... You know, at the legislature, we'll have a better sense of who's in charge. Maybe late uh, Wednesday, maybe early Thursday, and then on Thursday, maybe in the afternoon, huge story, we expect to find out who the chair, the new chair of the House Education Committee is going to be, who the members of the House Education Committee are going to be, and who is going to head up the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. That's the all-important, very powerful Joint Budget Committee right. in the legislature. So if you want to know who's going to be in a prime position to set education policy or education budgets. We'll start to have those answers come next week. So another full and busy week ahead and a lot that we'll have to uh, talk about and break down in next week's uh, podcast. We will be back next week. Another important podcast next week. But in the meantime, uh, thanks so much for listening. Do check out Kevin's series. Uh, if you have not already, head over to the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. If you weren't able to catch the rollout when it began first on Sunday evening, we have a little flag at the top of our website kind of organizing everything so you can go through it chronologically, chronologically or you can kind of uh, explore different topics that you may specifically be interested in. As always, you can give us a follow at Idaho Ed News on Twitter to see our latest breaking news. But thanks so much uh, for reading the site. Uh, November's a record for us. We really appreciate it. And we always have a lot of fun on the Ed, Ed Credit Podcast, breaking down this intersection of politics and policy. Uh, I've been talking too much, and so we're going to have to sign off. But thank you so much. Uh, thanks for checking out the series. We hope to see you next week on December 4th. Um, but have a good week. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.